0: Side hustling is great, but you're never gonna actually realize the value of your concept without
1: going full bore into it. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Jeremy Becker joins us on the show today. He's the co-founder and CEO of Cloverleaf AI. Their product helps customers access local government meetings virtually and create actionable insights based on the data they collect. In our conversation, we discussed why Jeremy chose this space, how the Techstars Accelerator helped his company, and what has surprised him most about the political industry. Jeremy, of all the problems in the world to solve, you went after local government meetings. Why is that? So I grew up around these meetings. Uh, My father
0: worked in local government, for a time, he was the treasurer for the city of Chicago. I, I promise he was one of the clean ones. Uh, most folks don't buy that. But so he was a single doesn't father. He doesn't
1: have an inmate number
0: right now. <laughs> not, yeah, not currently. Um, you know, good behavior and whatnot. No. Uh, so I would have to go to these meetings if you couldn't find a sitter. Um, and I like to say I was playing with my Tonka trucks in the back, trying to not fall asleep. I spent my... The previous or early part of my career working in software. And I took a executive MBA through Northwestern where I was like, come with an idea and kind of flesh it out. And I, I saw a problem and the solution I always attack things with is software. And this one seemed easily automatable. So I, I just put those two pieces together and it's, uh, it's made sense so far. So what is the problem that you tackled there? So at a national level, just locally, There are 1.4 million hours of government meetings that control $5.25 trillion every year. And I I don't think we need to go much further than our own personal experience to see that, like we would all love to go to our kids' school board meetings or the city council meeting, but they are incredibly difficult to interact with. So we automate that interaction. We like to say we give people eyes into every meeting by delivering them just the important
1: information that's pertinent to their life. Got it. And so previously how would people access this or you know, whether that's a, a, an individual private citizen or, or a company? A lot of what we've seen is that you have one of four options.
0: You can, and this is from the company perspective, you can send someone to attend every meeting, you can watch every meeting posted online, you can pay someone to do those things for you, or as most folks do, they just miss the information because it is too cumbersome, it's too dispersed, and too disorganized.
1: Just because there's just not enough signal or signal within the noise to to justify the investment?
0: Any government meeting, we found the average is right around three and a half hours for a city council meeting. And somewhere between what they're gonna do with the pigeons and you know the crazy lady down the street complaining about how the lights are too bright outside of her apartment there is a five minute nugget of intense value. But if you're doing that at the over 20,000 city councils that take place every week, like how you can't return value on someone actually sitting through the entire meeting. So we just deliver that five minute nugget of
1: value. So I think that's a great example of the long tail, right? So there's, there's plenty of attention paid to what's going on here in Washington you know whether it's, it's C-SPAN is in uh, every, both chambers and in every committee room. The money spent on on lobbying and corporate advocacy. The impact of local government is, I would argue, more tangible to most people. So, so why aren't more people following what's going on in their local area? I, th- I think it's
0: just the disparate nature. Uh, I, if you were to ask me, honestly, I think media has a huge amount to do with it. Most folks just don't pay attention to politics except for once every four years, the diehards will pay attention once every two years, but they don't realize that their local tax rate or their ability to talk about when garbage is picked up are things that can really improve their lives. And if you look at that at a macro scale for a company, let's talk about when RFPs are coming out right? Like in in a lot of cases, unless you went to high school with the mayor in a local area, you're going to be late on that RFP. And RFPs are often written for a specific vendor in mind. So I think it's just that this difficult, disparate nature of these meetings is too much to see a quick ROI on it, which is why we're using software to automate it.
1: Got it. and And I think it is I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on here, and you, you touched on these. One is kind of the the lack of civic education, right? People really, I I've dealt with this, you know, where people, you know, think the person running for uh, Congress that you know the House district is the senator, um, or you know, the person running for governor is is trying to be um, Congress person. You know, they just there's lack of of, of civic awareness. And then the other thing that's, that's a real challenge is the lack of local media. A lot of these, these meetings are happening in a place where there's no journalists there. And so obviously a, a solution like yours is, is, is really important to be able to bring people back into that legislative process that's happening at a, at a local level.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think about just in Denver, the Denver post used to have reporters and we are Denver based just to, to clarify that, um, the Denver Post used to have reporters up in Greeley, so Northern Col- Colorado, Pueblo, Southern Colorado. They had them on the um, on the Western Slope. And now they they just cannot afford, they, they, there's no justification for having someone there. So they're not actually hearing from the folks that are in those communities. Uh, Civic Pulse came out with a stat recently that 45% of local and county government meetings have zero journalistic coverage. Mostly because it is
1: financially not viable to send folks there. And that really puts citizens at a as a disadvantage. I think it's probably time to go into, you know, how, how you actually accomplish this. And and I, I know one of the biggest challenges that you face is imposing order on unstructured data, right? you know, every, every town council, every city council, every county commission is doing it differently. They're providing different data um, structures. So, you know, if this were spreadsheets, right, structured data, it'd be really easy, but you're dealing with, with a lot of different outputs. How do you actually go about bringing order from all of that chaos? You've
0: nailed the biggest problem we faced at the beginning on the head. And that's, our, like the first nugget of our proprietary data or our pr- proprietary product is identifying these meeting sources and being able to tell the difference between the local access TV showing the girls basketball game versus the city council meeting. It runs anywhere from they put every meeting on YouTube and it's incredibly ordered to one of the county commissioner's grandsons is good with tech. And so they built a website and started posting it. So that is where we come, our our tech comes in to identify the meetings. We take them in, we process them, take the speech in the meeting, turn it into text where every word is timestamped and reconnect it to the video. So the video itself is searchable and folks can find it. But yeah, that, that was the first big hurdle we had to jump over.
1: Got it. Um, you know, artificial intelligence, AI has become a bit of a buzzword. Everyone says they've got it, uh, but it's right in your name. So walk us through uh, how your platform makes use of AI to to do all of
0: this. So the, that first bit is huge. And I will be the first one to tell you I'm not the, the tech guy on the team. So I, I kind of describe it as spam filtering. So we can automatically identify where the video source is, but is this a video we actually care about? And that's where we use metadata. We use the first transcripts that we get to say, when you see this title. So we're training that model to not grab the girls basketball game, high school game, and instead grab just the city council meetings. So that's step one. Then of course there's the speech to text portion and then the back end of trying to derive meaning out of it. I know AI is a buzzword, my CTO prefers things like NLP. Natural language processing. Yeah, of course, yeah. And machine learning are, are much more accurate about what we're
1: doing as opposed to AI, but AI uh, rings more true. <laughs> to a lot of folks right. and just so our listeners understand NLP natural language processing be able to to take human text that's being spoken and turn it into written down text is 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 one of the I think most common applications of artificial intelligence and so it's kind of a umbrella under that term or and, and same with the machine learning right where you you give something a data set and you say, okay, this is a basketball game, this is a city council. Uh, meeting. And then you do that maybe a hundred more times. And then the uh, AI can say, oh, well, I, I have enough examples that uh, I'll be good for you know 99% of cases. Is that kind of an accurate summary? Yeah, that's exactly
0: right. Okay. It's providing the algorithm with a decent data set using human intelligence, which for the time being is still the best, <laughs> that it can then go
1: become repeatable. and. You know, automated. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Jeremy Becker from Cloverleaf AI. Jeremy, you and your co-founder took Cloverleaf through a TechStars accelerator program. How did that experience help you, and and is it something you'd recommend to other founders? So I'm, I'm tentative on the on the last question because every founder comes <laughs> at things from a
0: different different angle. For us, it was transformative. We went in pre-product, pre-revenue. Techstars actually reached out to us. So hey, just,
1: just yeah. for our listeners who might not be familiar with that, we give us give us a sense of what, what is pre-product and pre-revenue mean. So we had a we had a a beta
0: that was actually a different product. Okay. But we had the idea that the data that we were gathering would be even more valuable at scale. So we didn't actually have the product that we planned on building and selling for cloverleaf yet. Uh and we were pre-revenue, so no customers, no users, because there was no product, of course. And Techstars reached out to us through a few managing director connections that we have. And we kind of went back and forth on it because they, they take some equity, they do provide some capital. So that's why I'm tentative to prescribe it for anyone. But in our state, once again, it was transformative. We had 90 customer interviews in the first three weeks. So we were able to dig down into what people not only wanted, what would they pay for? Who would pay more for it? So we knew who to listen to a little bit better. Um, And then of course, they they provide some connections, advisor network. Eric, I believe that's how you and I came into contact was through that advisor network. So two software bros trying to hack the political world. We were kind of outsiders looking in. So they. it was huge for us. But if you find yourself in a similar state, I would strongly recommend it. But you know, no, no prescriptions here.
1: Yeah. Well, obviously, I'm going to brag on the Startup Caucus Incubator program here for, for folks who are, are, are looking at, at, at a similar program. Uh, obviously, the open invitation, anyone who is interested in building this space please reach out because uh, Jeremy, you hit on exactly what I think the value of these programs are, are one, it's a seal of approval. It's a validator. Someone who is a subject matter expert looked at your idea and said, there's something here. And so that, that makes it safe for those users to then spend time with you. Um, Kind of that instant credibility. And then the network uh, of meeting with the, the right people. And so I think that's, that's the true value of a, of an accelerator program. And you, you really need to look at what they are bringing to the table in that regard.
0: And if I can add one other thing to that, Eric, um, both my CTO and myself had very comfortable jobs. Um, we we're both side hustling this thing and getting that validation in the space to, for someone like yourself to say, yeah, let's jump in. We believe in you. Let's go do this thing was a, just another way it was transformative. Because side hustling is great, but you're never going to actually realize the value of your concept without going full bore into
1: it. Yeah, it's like taking the training wheels off.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, the 10 hours a week we were each putting in was cute, but until you can get to that 80-hour-a-week level, you're you're kind of just dipping a toe in.
1: I'm curious to hear how... How does your mission, you know, making local government more accessible, help you attract talent, partners, and investors? Is there something unquantifiable there that gives you a little bit of a boost? So on a talent level, I think
0: that depends on the position. My CTO would be the first one to tell you developers are divas. And I apologize to any developer (laughs) I may have offended here, but uh, they're treated quite well. So we have a very specific... Group that we're looking for, and they don't necessarily need to love government data or accessibility, but it's the folks that just want to build something that want to get in on the ground floor and believe that there's value is a lot of what we're finding there from an investor standpoint. Because we are pretty niche, it helps us find who we're looking for. You know, we're not the next CBD marketplace or okay. <laughs> web design firm, we have been very driven by finding folks that understand our problem and have lived our problem and realize that there's no real solution for it. I, I I don't know where you'd put us between gov tech, legal tech, political tech. I think we all know there's something missing there. Right. And there are a lot of people that that buy into it.
1: Yeah, and, and that I think that can be a, a strength because I, I deal with this quite a bit where entrepreneurs are sort of looking at this space. So whether it's politics, advocacy, government, and they say, Oh, it's a tiny market, right? The CBD or NFT marketplaces or multi-billion dollar industries, and like you know, that that's true, but you've got to go out and compete with everyone going after that. And so when you're building something in this space so it was sort of like small p politics you are able to determine whether you're going to get traction pretty quickly right because it's it's there's not a whole lot of people you can talk to uh, about this and so you you find if you're getting traction um the the investors come pretty quickly. You talk to everyone you need to. And so it really does help you get to building a successful startup right away, even though the total addressable market, what we call the TAM, is much smaller. Well, and I would even say in this topic is top of mind
0: for a lot of people, but with this impending potential recession, I I don't want to be a... a, a I think we're already in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um... You're also looking at a recession proof industry. Like our our buyers, whether it be in the political field or large corporates, the folks that need to understand what's happening in the government, they're not, I'm not having to sell CBD to your cousin, right? Like I don't get B2C markets. (laughs) Um, They terrify me. Whereas here, you know, and sure, there are booms and busts, right? Every four years, a, a lot of money funnels in, but Both parties are investing much more into a local state world where that money is coming annual, coffers fill up at different times. But if you can prove your value, you're on their balance sheet for the foreseeable future.
1: So, Jeremy, what are some other problems or challenges that you looked at addressing um before you went with this idea or or maybe some that you've discovered through the the process because i'm always fascinated to see from someone who effectively an outsider even though you had some some family background in the the industry um what what feels like it's missing the one that we have run into multiple
0: times is automating foia requests so freedom of information act Mm -hmm. requests because all of this information is publicly available but a lot of it takes a long time to get. And sometimes you even need a FOIA attorney to, to get at the really deep stuff. Every state has their own requirements. So that's that's one thing that's been kind of percolating in our minds to either add to the product or spin off. That's called
1: malicious compliance, right? It's it's the the FOIA response where they send it to you on a CD. Right, those are those are some of my favorites, right? Because because then we have to find a, a laptop that has a CD drive in it. But yeah, it's uh, or pay twelve
0: hundred dollars if you want it emailed to you. It's like exactly. oh, so now I need to pay for my freedom of information.
1: That's <laughs> uh, never quite sat right with me. Right. Yeah. So that that is an interesting problem and and uh, similar sort of thing where if if you are um, the average citizen you want to be able to access or hold your local government accountable, you need to be able to have information like this. So uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting.
0: I'm a firm believer that all of this information should be easily accessible, right? It's, it's our tax dollars going to it. And any sort of obfuscation in that process does not benefit citizens. Or if we, like I said, we're selling to large corporates, that just helps drive public-private partnership competition in those markets that otherwise wouldn't have it, which also ends up
1: benefiting citizens. Right. What has surprised you the most about building a startup in this industry? I'm tempted to say everything. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe pick a couple that that were were
0: really head scratchers. To speak completely transparently, the largest surprise was kind of the shirts and skins game between the parties hmm. um i thought that there would be people would recognize value and, and jump in but one of the two parties i won't mention which seems to uh, uh guard what they do is just their toys and they're going to take their ball and go home if anyone else tries to play with it interesting
1: i think one of the the, the challenges that you see there is we are still dealing with uh I guess, the repercussions of the 2016 election uh, and 2020 election and sort of the upheaval that came with that. Um, you know, it, there, there was always a little bit of that, but it, I haven't seen it this bad in my 15 years of, of working in this industry. And, and you know, it is frustrating to someone like me who also tries to place technology into campaigns and organizations where, you know, you'll be talking with uh, with a company that has a totally neutral technology, but then they accept investment from from someone or or do a deal with someone, and and then it's you know I'm sorry we just can't talk to you anymore. You know it is surprising, but hopefully something like this. It's data you're providing the the ingredients. You're not you're not um, deciding whether it's going to be Subway or Jimmy John's or something. You know, like there's not anything there. But it does sort of highlight something that we tell entrepreneurs all the time, which if you're going to be doing campaigns, you know you do need to pick a side. I think. In your case, you're focused on a different segment of the market, and I'm disappointed but not surprised to hear that.
0: Yeah, and, and we try to ride that line pretty hard. And and for those listening, the most successful branding that we found with it is to call yourself a business intelligence platform that can be used for campaigns because then they're, they're not thinking about, well, who else have they worked with, right? Because sometimes the question will come up before, They've even <laughs> expressed buying intent, which is just kind of blows my mind. And and I think you're spot on as well with how divisive things are right now and hope that we can get to a, a more understanding level of collaboration yeah. here soon.
1: Anything else that jumps out as, as being a surprise?
0: The other thing I will say is that DC is a, a small town, but also a very large town simultaneously. So if I were to provide any advice on it is to maintain relationships. And my friends joke that I would network at a funeral, (laughs) but really, really dig into networking and connecting dots between who knows who, because there are really strong adjacency network effects where if one person knows you and is working with you and even if they just say yeah i know those guys there there's a lot of weight behind a statement like that i don't know if i'm supposed to be providing advice here but no 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 i know. mean
1: that that is that is good advice and and it's always good to hear it from from someone who's in the thick of it right because i think a lot of people who are product minded or, or come from a software background or like, look, I'm just going to build a really good product. I'm going to put up a splash page. I'm going to put up a pricing table and get it out in front of folks. And that's how my, my idea is going to go out there. But, but you've hit the nail on the head with it, it is a, a relationship driven industry. Um, and, and there's a currency around trust and referrals and networks. Uh, and, and it's not always well documented right, in, in the way that, that it might be in other industries. And and so that's I, I, really fascinating to hear you articulate it that way, which is sort of undocumented strong ties um, between people, because it, it's a small town with a lot going on. Definitely.
0: One of our advisors, she's a, a former chief of staff, referred to herself as someone who traffics in information and connection. So I think that kind of speaks for itself and that ability to connect the dots and talk to the right folks at the right time and go meet people in person
1: is huge, I've found. I agree with that. And certainly as the pandemic has come to not a close, but a more manageable place, the in-person is very much back and being in town in D.C. is is very helpful. I want to thank Jeremy for joining us today for a very thoughtful conversation. If you want to learn more about Cloverleaf, go to cloverleaf.ai. That link is in the show notes. Uh, You can learn more about his product. And if you want, schedule a demo to learn more. I'm sure he and his team would love to walk you through their platform. I would ask you to remember to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode with a friend or colleague if it made you a little bit smarter. It'll make you look good and help introduce the podcast to more people. Another way that you can do that is by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. Again, you're probably tired of me saying this, but the best way for us to reach new listeners and bring more people into this ecosystem is through discovery. With that, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Business of Politics show.